Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with stage 4 endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Today we're going to talk about the different types of endometriosis. And this is a part of our series about understanding endometriosis. Because there is so much confusion around endometriosis, isn't there? Agreed. Right? There's just so much confusion around the terminology used with it, the acronyms used with it. How to spell it. Oh, wait. No, no. We got that. How to pronounce it. (laughs) I think we got that too. (laughs) So, Brittany and I want to demystify endometriosis. We can't cure it, but we can understand it. It's half the battle. I think that's a good goal, (laughs) just to understand it. (laughs) Well, and I think the thing is when we understand the disease that we're living with, we are better equipped to make decisions about it. We're better equipped to know how to treat it. We are better able to talk about it, to understand research about it. I feel like the goal of this series is to understand endo. Am I correct? Today, the focus of our topic on understanding endometriosis is the types of endometriosis. In the future, we want to do episodes on the stages of endometriosis, the definition of what endometriosis really is, the appearance, the colors, the locations in the body, how it actually affects our body, why it causes pain and other symptoms when we have flares. So we got big things lined up. Big plans. Big endometriosis plans. Are you wondering something about endometriosis that you really desperately, direly, exhaustively, tirelessly Wow, you're really in the adjectives right now. <laughs> I know. Half Were of those, you using a thesaurus just then? <laughs> half of those don't even make sense, but I just feel like they're amified. It's fine. I feel like we're on a, a TV show and they're like, okay, well, call in. <laughs> call in with your questions. But if you have a burning question in your mind about endometriosis and you're like, oh, I would love to know the answer to that, please write us and let us know your question. And no, we are not scientists. And no, we are not doctors. But yes. We love researching, and we would love to try to answer your question and talk about it in an episode. So if you have questions on something to do with endometriosis, let us know, and we shall find out. Go on a quest for the answer. (laughs) (laughs) We're adventurers. We're (laughs) endoventurers. Oh, isn't that fun? We'll go off to Bowel Island, Bladder Mountain. Sigmoid ocean. Although, really, the bladder would be the ocean if you. <laughs> if we wanted to be technical here. <laughs> <laughs> Rectum mountain. And we will seek out those answers. It's a treasure hunt. Ooh, treasure. And the What's prize. The treasure? the treasure is you get to understand better the illness that you live with every single day. That's never <laughs> going away. Oh. But okay, that's a good price. <laughs> okay. So please write us your questions if you have any about endometriosis. So since we're talking about the types of endo today, Amy, what are the three types of endometriosis? Okay. You have your Siamese, your Persian, and your Scottish fold. Uh, I think those are three types of cats. Um, (laughs) I wanted the three types of endo, Amy. Okay. You have your American tabby, your Uh, Japanese bobtail, and your British shorthair. Still cats. Hmm. (laughs) I'm just going to answer what the three types of endometriosis are. Not cats. Superficial. Ovarian endometrioma. And deeply infiltrating endometriosis. 
None of those are cat breeds, if you didn't notice, Amy. Can you imagine having the deeply infiltrating cat? Oh, gosh. <laughs> the deeply infiltrating Siamese. <laughs> the superficial Scottish fold. <laughs> okay, like, maybe those sound cool. I'll give you that. <laughs> the Japanese bobtail with, like, the little tails, really, the ovarian endometrioma in the tail. Okay, all right, you win. <laughs> that does sound way cooler. All right, Brittany, so let me clear this up. You said there are three types of endo, so can I have more than one type at once? Like, can I have two types at the same time? Absolutely. Can I have three types at the same time? Yes, that's like winning the endometriosis lottery. Yes, you can. Okay, can I have four types of endometriosis? No, because I only named three. No, Brittany, you said the superficial, the ovarian endometrioma, the deeply infiltrating endometriosis, and the Scottish fold. I said the first three and not the fourth one. But if you had the Scottish Fold Kitty in your abdomen, that'd be pretty. <laughs> that'd be something very different. <laughs> that'd be pretty scary. <laughs> that'd be way different. That thing would be clawing out like endometriosis, but like clawing through. <laughs> that'd be very scary. Let's not. Let's bring it back. Let's reel it back. Can I have no types of endometriosis? Yes, but then you'd have no endometriosis. Oh, my God. That'd be my dream. <laughs> so if you get the endometriosis lottery, you have all three. If you're lucky in a different way and you have the non-endometriosis lottery, you get zero. Either way, you win the prize. So we're going to first talk about superficial endometriosis. So super and super endometriosis, not super endometriosis, God. Superficial endometriosis is endometriosis that's less than five millimeters below the peritoneal surface. Brittany, slow down already. All I got on was superficial, fragilistic, califragilistic. <laughs> Whoa, that's not even that's pronounced. Superficial, califragilistic, XP, endometriosis. Oh, good job. Even though the sound of it is something quite atrocious. <laughs> it truly is. It is. All right. So can you say that again, Brittany? Please. Yes. Superficial endometriosis is endometriosis that's less than 5 millimeters below the peritoneal surface. What is a peritoneal surface? The peritoneum is a thin layer of tissue, mm, gory, that lines your abdominal cavity and it covers all of your abdominal organs. Sounds nice, right? So the same way that gifts come wrapped in tissue paper, Imagine that your bladder and your bowels. Oh, just what I always wanted for my birthday. My own bladder. <laughs> what hey, a gift. Here, this is an ovary wrapped in our new peritoneum wrapping paper. I'd take that. I only got one ovary. I'd be like, <laughs> heck yeah, how do you suck that thing up? Maybe it'll work better than the one I got now. My other lazy one's left. Let's give it a new one. <laughs> Let me give that one away. We can do a gift swap. Now we're talking about organ harvesting. I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that. <laughs> Superficial endometriosis is pretty easy to understand. It's just endometriosis that is more like a superficial lesion on the surface level that does not go very deep. So it doesn't go more than five millimeters deep. If you're wondering how much five millimeters is, it is the width of a pencil eraser. A brand new pencil eraser, not like one that you've like used for six months and you've like Completely use it down to the nub, and now you're just rubbing metal on your paper? Like, not that kind. And not one that you've chewed on. Ew. A new one. <laughs> Ew, eraser. <laughs> Yummy. What a good snack. Next, let's talk about deeply infiltrating endometriosis. Ugh, Amy, you're making me go out of order. Pull it together, Brittany. We you will get to ovarian that. endometriosis. It's the only thing I can feel like I'm in control of right now. <laughs> Deeply infiltrating endometriosis is often abbreviated in endometriosis literature as D-I-E. It's abbreviated as die? Is that because it's what it feels like when you have endometriosis? Like you're going to (laughs) die? Brittany, I don't think it's because it's how it makes you feel. I think it's more about the first letter, the D for deeply, the I for infiltrating, the E for endo. The acronym like D-I-E from the letters, from the words. So, Brittany, what exactly is deeply infiltrating endometriosis? So we talked about how superficial endometriosis is less than 5 millimeters below the peritoneal surface. 
Right. So it's superficial. (gasps) Wait, let me take a gander. Is deeply infiltrating endometriosis deep? Oh, my God. It's the peritoneal cervix. You're so smart. Thank you, Brittany. (laughs) Yes. The name of this type of endo kind of was this. Small giveaway, but yes, it's. I really put two and two together there. You're so brilliant. Yeah, so let me guess. So it's deeper into the tissue, and it infiltrates like a. What does infiltrate even mean in this context? It's like a spy. It like gets in there. It's like wreaks havoc. It's like hey, it's plotting a coup against the rest of your organs. <laughs> Isn't that the <laughs> truth? My goodness. It goes in there. It's like a double agent. It's like hey, bowel, wanna smoke? You wanna hang out a little? Smoke. Yeah, he's a bad kid. Go for a ride in my convertible. Oh, wow, convertibles are bad kid things now. (laughs) Amy's clearly (laughs) clearly has a very um, vibrant picture of a bad kid. Were you a bad kid, Amy? Is that what you did? Smoked and drove in convertibles? And he's wearing a leather jacket. (laughs) I mean, that's pretty cool, though. He sounds cool. (laughs) He gets in there. He's like, hey, Bowel. Bowel's like, oh, hey, hey, what's your name? I'm like, hey, my name is Mr. Die. Oh, cool. Nice to meet you. (laughs) Great. Then he gets in there. He's like, ha! tricked you, pal, and I'm going to make you writhe in pain. I'm going to block you. No stool's going to get by this. You're all obstructed. What a rude double agent. <laughs> Drives in there with his convertible into the wall. I mean, that pal. sounds awful to be driven into <laughs> my convertible, but okay. <laughs> so after all of that roundabout zaniness that we just experienced, to confirm what you said is correct, but in like, you know, the clinical term, deeply infiltrating endometriosis is five millimeters or deeper below the peritoneal surface. So you were right, but I just, you know, scienced it up a little bit. So deeply infiltrating endometriosis is, as the name implies, it's deep. It infiltrates. It's a double agent. It's endometriosis. (laughs) Did I win? (laughs) It's known for being a more severe form of endometriosis. It is known for being more painful and a more aggressive form of endometriosis. Okay, Amy, so if this double agent is so aggressive and so good at his job, where is he infiltrating in our bodies? Oftentimes, deeply infiltrating endometriosis likes to infiltrate the rectovaginal septum. Ooh. So infiltrate, in this case, can mean like going into, like going deep into the tissue of the rectovaginal septum. Brittany. Yes. What is the rectal vaginal septum? So I know the word septum because, like, I have one in my nose. You know, it's between my two nostrils, that little wall that keeps them two nostrils. <laughs> so I'm going to guess that a rectal vaginal septum is a thin wall between my rectal cavity and my vaginal cavity. Did I win? Yeah. So other places that the double agent deeply infiltrating endometriosis likes to infiltrate and hang out is the digestive tract, so the bowels or the bladder or the uterosacral ligaments. That sounds painful. Well, the uterosacral ligaments, I bet you don't even know what they are, Brittany. You're like, that sounds so painful. Wow, and yet you shade. have no idea. What you don't know that. what I do or don't know. <laughs> I don't know what that is. I'm <laughs> defining it for myself. <laughs> so the uterosacral ligaments are ligaments, so they're structures that keep the uterus and the cervix in place. If they get weak, not from endo, just like in general, you can have uterus prolapse and your uterus can fall down into your vagina. Oh, that sounds awful. That's not common with endo, so we don't want you to think that's going to happen. We just want to show the importance of what the uteral sacral ligaments do in the body. So they're keeping the uterus and the cervix in place. And oftentimes they get infiltrated by that double agent. Okay, so I'm just a little confused. I want to make sure I understand. So if there's endometriosis on those body parts that you just mentioned, does that mean that it's automatically deeply infiltrating endometriosis or not? Brittany. Um, you, the one who at the beginning of this talk about the type, defined what deeply infiltrating endometriosis is. And as I recall, you said it was five millimeters or more mm-hmm. below the peritoneum surface. So on those organs, it's not just deeply infiltrating endometriosis that could be there. You could also have just superficial or just deeply infiltrating or both. 
Yes. So uh. let's say, for example, your bowel. You can have superficial endometriosis on the bowel, and it's superficial because it's less than five millimeters deep. And then maybe a little further down the bowel, you have deeply infiltrating endometriosis that is more than five millimeters deep. So you can have both types or one type or no type, if you're lucky, of endometriosis on these different body parts. Okay, Brittany, how does a surgeon know how deep the endometriosis is on the organ? I believe that sometimes they can measure the endometriosis lesions because they are excised, and so they'll have them and be able to measure them. But I think more commonly is that they can tell the way that the peritoneum, which remember we said is like the tissue lining, the organs and the pelvic cavity, they can tell the way the peritoneum changes around the endometriosis lesions. And I think that the surgeon's experience is really helpful in that because when you've seen so many lesions that are just a couple millimeters deep and lesions that are more than five millimeters deep, I think it becomes easier to like recognize the subtle changes that is in the peritoneum around the endometriosis. Which goes to show that experience is super important when you're having your endometriosis surgery. So you said that it can be measured if a person has excision surgery, but how do they measure it in a person that has ablation surgery? That's a good question. With excision surgery, as many of us know, they are cutting around the endometriosis lesions down to the root. And so because they're excising them and they're getting the root, they're able to really see how deep into the tissue the endometriosis goes. But during ablation surgery, they're actually superficially burning the endometriosis, so they're not cutting it out. So they're not, they're not cutting around the tissue, so they're not able to actually see how deep the endometriosis is. Why is it so important that endometriosis is taken out at the root and not just superficially? Well, because if endometriosis is left in the body, it can continue causing pain. It can continue causing inflammation. It can continue causing changes to the surrounding tissue. And it can cause like the surrounding tissue to be irritated and to bleed, which can then cause fibrosis and scarring and adhesions. If the tissue is spurned superficially, then endometriosis is more likely to recur because the root is still in the body. So it's really important to get endometriosis at the root because that's going to give you the best chance of, one, getting rid of your endometriosis, and two, getting rid of all those nasty symptoms and pain and flares and inflammation and irritation that endometriosis causes. So if ablation only removes the superficial endometriosis, if I only have superficial endometriosis, is that satisfactory? Well, what's interesting about endometriosis, or not interesting, I don't know. Terrifying. <laughs> what's horrible <laughs> about endometriosis is that, so ablation surgery, which burns endometriosis on the superficial level, is actually very shallow. It usually burns around two millimeters deep. Oh. So I know we said that superficial endometriosis is under five millimeters, but Usually endometriosis is deeper, even superficial endometriosis is oftentimes deeper than the ablation can burn. You see, so even with superficial endometriosis, most times ablation surgery is not fully burning through the endometriosis. So it's still leaving the root of the endometriosis there. Ah. So superficial endometriosis is still best treated by excision surgery. And of course, sometimes ablation surgery is the only option that we have in our treatment in our current situation. So there's nothing wrong with selecting that option. We just wanted to talk about this so that you understand the facts and what ablation surgery versus what excision surgery is able to remove. So deeply infiltrating endometriosis is actually the least common form of endo. Oh, good. That's really good because <laughs> a relief. <laughs> it's the most aggressive and the most severe, so it's good that it's actually the least prevalent of the three types of endo. 
And speaking of prevalency, unfortunately, there's not actually much data to show us exactly how common it is or uncommon. Some sources say there's about an estimated 1% incidence among people with endo, but others say up to 20. Now we're on to the third type of endometriosis, which is ovarian endometriomas, which is often abbreviated in the literature, in the research as O-M-E. Ome. Oh, that sounded way more fancy. (laughs) (laughs) So ovarian endometrioma is a type of cyst, which is caused by the endometriosis, and it's on the ovary. Is it like an ovarian cyst, but... An ovarian cyst that's on steroids. Absolutely. That's pumping iron in the gym every (laughs) single day. That's just what we need, exhausting our ovaries. (laughs) On the bike machine, getting their thighs all huge. Can't forget leg day. So funnily enough, which you'll like, ovarian endometriomas are often known as chocolate cysts. I love chocolate. I know. Even though I can't eat it right now because of histamine. (laughs) Screw you, histamine. But sometime later you can. Yeah, maybe in like two years. Brittany, why is it known as a chocolate cyst? It's because these cysts contain brown liquid inside that looks like chocolate syrup. (gasps) Oh, my God. But is it chocolate syrup? Uh, definitely no. Okay, so you're telling me that I have chocolate inside of my body. I was not. No, I was not. You're telling me, wait, (laughs) if my body is making these ovarian chocolate cysts, Oh, my God. I'm like a chocolate factory. Oh, my God. I'm Charlie from Charlie the Chocolate Factory. You're still not. And you'd be really Wonka, not Charlie. Oh, really? (laughs) He owned the chocolate factory, Amy. But no, you're not a chocolate factory. I I got off the point. From now forward, you shall refer to me as Willy Wonka. No, Amy Wonka. (laughs) (laughs) Is the chocolate inside of me, like, is it dark chocolate? Like a... Are we talking like a 90% dark? Are we talking like a milk chocolate? Ooh. No, I don't want to think white chocolate because that'd be kind of like pus. Okay, but we're still talking about a brown liquid inside of a cyst that looks like chocolate syrup, not is chocolate syrup. So the fact that you're grossed out by potential pus but not by a brown liquid is, I just don't understand what you're doing right now. Okay, next. God, I seriously haven't had chocolate in like, hold on, I want to do like a 10 second whining about my life. Okay. I have not had chocolate in over a year and a half. <laughs> Cry for it's me. Mourn for the chocolate. Oh, God. Mourn for Amy Wonk over here who's <laughs> dying to eat chocolate who can't. Okay, like, I love chocolate. Seriously, I love myself a couple of squares a day of 90% dark, which seems really bitter until you get used to it. And then you're like, oh, the oh, bitterness. It's like the oh. most chocolate flavor possible. Dark chocolate is God, just something it's just else. So, it's so thick and oh, chocolate is better than sex. I mean, first of all, so many things are better than sex because when sex is like sticking a dagger into your cervix, well, pretty much anything is better than sex. (laughs) Yeah. If it's penetrative sex on the table versus some chocolate, I'm probably going to take the chocolate. (laughs) Oh, God. I want chocolate so badly. (laughs) I want chocolate. Well, And I don't want sex. So if my boyfriend is listening... Get it straight. I don't want penetrative sex. I just want chocolate. I just want a little bit of chocolate, and then I want you to leave me alone. That's well, really luckily, what I want. You are a chocolate factory, so even if you can't taste the chocolate, it's still inside you. Oh, she admitted it. You see, I do have chocolate in my body. Nasty. So, Brittany, really, though, what is inside of the cyst? Chocolate. We, we just confirmed that. It's, it's chocolate. Uh, well, what? You were right. Oh, yes. I love being right. No, but really. Why is it called a chocolate cyst? What is this brown, chocolatey syrup, fudge-like? Oh, ooh. <laughs> ooh. God, I want chocolate so badly. I can tell. <laughs> I haven't had chocolate. Okay, pull it together. <laughs> Snap out of it. Pull it together. It's fine. Having had sex. Having had chocolate. What has my life become? <laughs> so much of sadness. It's okay. So because endometriosis loves to irritate everything around it, what it does in these cysts is irritates the tissue in it. So when it does that, it actually destabilizes the capillaries and they bleed. So when it bleeds into the cyst, because it's a cyst, there's no exit. So the blood just stays in there. It's like a shell. The cyst is the shell around the blood and the yolk is like the chocolate. 
So they're like an egg, you know? Eggshell is the cyst, and the inside is the yolk and albumin. It's less less appetizing than chocolate, though. Let's go with... It's a chocolate egg. Okay, it's like, yeah. It's a chocolate shell. Oh! It's solid. A, and, and then it's a kinder egg. And then sometimes oh, there's inside, a toy inside. Yeah. <laughs> That's why sometimes when you go in and you have the ultrasound and they're like, okay, we're seeing here you have a pretty large lemon-sized chocolate cyst on your ovary. Ooh, and are we making out? Is that the outline of four wheels? Is that a toy car inside of that chocolate egg? It can be important to get the pathology report of your cyst when you have surgery to remove your endometrioma because, one, of course you want to find out what percentage of chocolate your cyst is. 90, 75, are we talking milk, are we talking white? <laughs> I really want chocolate, too. You can have chocolate, so don't talk to me. When this I is over, you can Rican go chocolate. get chocolate. <laughs> I cannot I'm so sorry. get chocolate. And I also cannot substitute sex for chocolate. So I'm screwed over here. Or not, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Brittany, this is a clean podcast. Don't go there. <laughs> Sorry. So you can have various types of cysts, but there is one cyst called a corpus luteum cyst, Ooh. which is quite fancy sounding. And this cyst can also look like an endometrioma, but it's not actually endometriosis. It's not actually an endometrioma. It's a kind of cyst that could form if something goes haywire in the process of the regular cyst that forms when your egg is released from your ovary. So basically, it's just important, as always, with anything that you do in surgery to have them do a biopsy and to get a pathology report to make sure that it actually is an endometrioma. So how do you know via the biopsy, like what helps us to understand and know if it is an endometrioma or if it's another type of cyst? So an endometrioma will have focal points of endometriosis throughout the cyst wall. Oh, lucky cyst. So guess what, Brittany? What, Amy? Endometriomas hate being lonely. Why does that not surprise me? Because no one likes to eat chocolate alone. <laughs> Actually, everyone. I mean, like, I'd love to. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll sit in this box by myself and eat some chocolate. <laughs> Traitor. <laughs> if I can't have chocolate, you can't have chocolate. I don't think that's how that's this works. That's the way this friendship goes. Nah, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would do it for you, but I don't have to, so. <laughs> so you said that endometriomas don't like being lonely. What does that mean exactly? Exactly what I said, Brittany, that they don't like being lonely because okay. they don't like being alone. Okay, but I want to know technically what that means for the endometriosis. That most times, usually, ovarian endometriosis, and in this case it could be endometriomas, which are the cysts, the chocolate cysts, or it could just be endometriosis on the ovary, is not usually found by itself. Oh. So if you have ovarian endometriosis, it is not usually an isolated endometriosis. So normally that means that you have endometriosis in other parts of your pelvic cavity. Okay, so give me some statistics here. How likely is it for me to have ovarian endometriosis all by itself? The stats. Give them to me. I can give you the stats. Thank you. So there was one study, and it was done by the Endometriosis Treatment Program of St. Charles Medical Center in Bend, Oregon. And they used their computer database. Oh, we love computers. I love databases. <laughs> and what they did was they saw the different areas of endo in the pelvis, and they found that of 1,785 patients... That is a large number of patients. That is a lot. Right? Because oftentimes studies are like, in 50 people, in 100 people. They're like, no, in 1,785 patients with endometriosis. Are you ready, Brittany? I am, Amy. Only 19 of those patients had ovarian endometriosis by itself. Whoa. Do you know what percentage 19 of 1,785 is? I'm really terrible at math, so no, I do not. It's 1.06%. Wow. Actually, like, whoa, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah. So basically, only 1.06% of that population studied had ovarian endometriosis on their own. 
And other studies have been done, other different studies have been done on whether ovarian endometriosis is isolated or has other endometriosis in the pelvis. And other studies are showing that it's very rare for ovarian endometriosis to be found by itself. And guess what else this study showed, Brittany? What else? I'm so excited. Ooh. Or scared. I mean, both. Scare-sighted. Well, this study showed that people with ovarian endometriomas of more than one centimeter were associated with more extensive intestinal disease than people who did not have ovarian endometriomas. There was another study that showed in about 70 to 80% of cases, the ovarian endometriomas are an indication that the person has more severe pelvic and intestinal disease. So various studies have been showing that when ovarian endometriomas are present, it is oftentimes an indicator that the person has a more extensive or more severe endometriosis, oftentimes on the intestines. So I feel like what you're telling me is that the chocolate inside of me is not a good thing. It's a bad omen, Brittany. I feel like I don't believe you. Chocolate is magical and beautiful. Okay, so you've told me that the chocolate factory inside of me is not a good thing. I'm starting to believe you, but you know how much I like data. So can you give me some data, some numbers, some research, some statistics? Okay. This study I found really interesting. So. In this study, it was with 255 people who had at least one endometrioma. The study showed that if the endometrioma was located on the left side, oh my God, that's where mine was located. Oh, lucky you. I had one that was 12 centimeters. That was the size of a grapefruit. Oh, even more lucky. It's not like, you know, it was a grapefruit full of chocolate. No, that'd be like a cup of chocolate. Like how much chocolate do you think would come out of a grapefruit? I would say at least probably none since it's a grapefruit and it would be grapefruit juice. I would say like three cups of chocolate. (laughs) I don't think. What do you know? (laughs) A grapefruit is really big. I mean, it's not that big, but it's also filled with grapefruit not yeah chocolate. but if it was hollow okay okay. If, okay if you had an eggshell she's pretty use your imagination i don't want to if you had an eggshell that was the size of a grapefruit okay. and inside of it was liquid how much liquid do you think it would hold maybe like two cups oh god yeah, there was two cups of chocolate inside of me oh, it wasn't chocolate <laughs> <laughs> after surgery you're like did you keep the liquid that spilled <laughs> what is that chocolate milk doing there it's not chocolate milk, Amy. Don't do- it's not chocolate milk. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> this chocolate tastes kind of sour. Do you- yeah, <laughs> I bet it, was- it does. <laughs> do you think the milk was left out of the fridge for kind of I too think long? it was for the past 16 years, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this study showed that if the endometrioma was on the left side, it was more associated with having deeply infiltrating endometriosis in your rectum. Ooh. Oh my God, which I had. I had rectal deeply infiltrating endometriosis and a big old giant chocolate ball inside of me. I love how you sound so excited about that. Yeah, because if I was one of the 255 in the study, I would have shown that association. Now, granted, that doesn't mean that you have that. It's just an association. So what they're showing is that there's a correlation between endometriomas on the left side and the rectal deeply infiltrating endometriosis, but that does not mean that if you have an endometrioma on the left side, you're going to have. So it's not saying it causes it. It's not saying that it's a guarantee that if you have one, you'll have the other. It's just saying that it's been shown to be associated. Okay, so what if you have the grapefruit on both sides? They showed in the study that having an endometrioma on both sides was associated with adhesions and obliteration of the pouch of Douglas. Wait, obliteration? Total destruction. Oh, gosh. That's what obliteration means. I know. It's like a wrecking ball went in and just obliterated everything. That's horrible. Kind of feels like a wrecking ball went in there, to be honest. No, so the medical term of obliteration means that 
Well, it's not much better. It means that the body part disappears or collapses. That sounds the same thing. <laughs> That's the same. They're trying to make it sound all fancy and medical. It's the same thing. From the wrecking ball of endometriosis. Well, I could say that chocolate could definitely wreck lives. It wrecked yours. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's wrecking mine right now because I can't eat it. What it's saying is when it's on both sides, there's an association. So remember, it doesn't mean that it will be true for everyone, but there is an association with the obliteration. My goodness. So the total destruction, i.e. the body part disappearing or collapsing of your pouch of Douglas. And your pouch of Douglas is that lovely space that is between the back of your uterus and your rectum. Okay, so because you had a giant grapefruit-sized endometrioma, does that mean your deeply infiltrating endometriosis was worse because of that? No, Brittany. They did not find any correlation between the size of the endometrioma and the severity of the deeply infiltrating endometriosis. Thank goodness. Yeah. But just having the presence of it is enough. So you could have a big one, a little one. (laughs) So if you're working with a gynecologist and they find that you have an ovarian endometrioma, if they don't have much experience with endometriosis, which, as we know, gynecologists typically don't, they may not know that the endometriomas are usually associated with more severe pelvic or intestinal endometriosis. Okay, so what you're saying is, My regular gynecologist is probably ignorant of these very important facts, but why are these facts so important? Like, what does it matter if they know that or not? They just have to have their head full of useless knowledge. (laughs) It's useful knowledge. Well, it's useful because if they are performing your surgery, they may only focus on removing the endometrioma and not look deeper at your intestines or the other parts of your abdomen to see if there's actually endometriosis there. So they could miss the endometriosis in my pelvis. Yeah, essentially. Then they could tell me I don't have it when I really have it. Yeah, And then I, when I say I'm in pain and the doctor says, I removed your endometrioma and you don't have endometriosis, so you're not in pain, so it's all in your head. So go to a psychiatrist. Yeah, that's literally what could happen. Oh, my God. I think that happened to me. Yeah, it, it actually did. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. It's my life story. <laughs> but, yes, that's why it's so important is because The gynecologist could remove the endometrioma during the surgery, but not actually treat or diagnose the rest of your endo. If they're fortunate enough to know a little bit more about endometriosis, they may not be able to actually recognize the endometriosis because it comes in so many different colors and forms. Which we're going to talk about in one of our episodes on understanding endometriosis. Demystifying the disease. Oh, wow. That sounds mystical. Yeah, sounds good. (laughs) As we've said before, if your surgeon is not specialized in endometriosis, they're not a highly trained and experienced excision surgeon, for instance, they may not be trained to identify all the different colors and all the different forms of endometriosis. Fortunately, you can't actually ask your surgeon to take pictures during the surgery. They're a little weird to look at, but they're kind of fascinating. They're in there. They're like looking at your chocolate factory like, say cheese. (laughs) It smiles. You're like, no, I have a chocolate milk mustache. (laughs) So gross. (laughs) But they can actually take pictures for you. So with the post-op report, you can get those photos. And then you could take those photos with the post-op report to seek the second opinion with an actual endometriosis expert. So let's say that I'm fortunate enough to have a surgeon who is knowledgeable in endometriosis. So they see, for example, on an ultrasound that I have a chocolate factory, a chocolate cyst inside of my abdominal cavity. And they're like, oh, we're going to surgically remove this. What might that mean for my surgery if they know that endometriomas can be an indicator of more severe intestinal or pelvic disease? Well, if you're working with a surgeon that is knowledgeable about what an endometrioma could mean, they're likely to have you actually do a bowel prep before surgery. Oh, the dreaded bowel prep. (laughs) Doesn't it sound fun? Prepare your bowels. In addition to that, they're also very likely to include a general surgeon or even a GI surgeon in case endo's actually discovered on the bowel, and they'll use that other person to help remove the endo because they're specialized in that area, and they can work together to help remove that. 
I have a fear that my chocolate factory is just going to overflow and erupt and then all of my endometrioma fluid is going to swish around in my abdominal cavity. It's going to leak everywhere. Is that a realistic fear? Mm, not really. Endometriomas don't normally rupture, which is really good because we goodness. just established I had like two cups of chocolate inside of so me. So no like volcano Vesuvius out of the <laughs> chocolate factory. <laughs> not normally. Normally they don't rupture, but sometimes they can leak the chocolate-like fluid, so the brown fluid inside of them. There's good news and bad news to this. What do you want first? Give me the bad news first. All right. The bad news is that if the endometrioma leaks, the liquid can irritate the peritoneum. So that pelvic lining that we said, it can irritate the peritoneum. And this can cause pain, and this can cause inflammation, and that can cause scar tissue, and that can cause adhesions. So you got this whole, like, chain reaction caused by chocolate. Oh. The chocolate chain reaction. Okay, but what's the good news? Okay. Well, the good news is that if the fluid inside the endometrioma leaks into the pelvic cavity, it doesn't cause more endo to spread around and grow in the pelvic cavity. Oof. So it's not like... It's like poison ivy. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to, like, rub liquid on one part and then suddenly that you're going to have a breakout of endometriosis. That would be horrible. I'm so happy it doesn't do that. So I think you'll be shocked to know that ovarian endometriomas are best treated by surgery. <gasps> Ooh, it's like a recurring <laughs> theme with endometriosis where surgical excision is the best treatment for like all types of endometriosis. We're sensing a trend here. Well, that does mean that medical treatment like Lupron or Lissa or birth control won't actually shrink them. And endometriomas don't actually resolve on their own. I'll never be rid of my chocolate unless I take it out of myself. <laughs> well, they have to drain it. And then, as with any cyst, you have to also remove the cyst wall from the ovary so that it won't just reform and refill again. Nasty. I know. Ew. I did not know this, but when Brittany and I were researching about the three types of endometriosis, we came across some excision surgeons were saying that removing ovarian endometriomas can be one of the biggest challenges of excision surgery. I was really surprised to read that because I didn't think that it presented such a challenge to remove an endometrioma, but depending on their size, they can be stuck to everything around them. So the chocolate factory, by the way, it's called the chocolate cyst. We just keep calling it a chocolate factory because we want chocolate to be inside of us. Because we want to be Willy Wonka. <laughs> <laughs> but the chocolate cyst, it can be stuck to the rectum. It can be stuck to your ureters. I know what those are. <gasps> what, Brittany? They're the ducts that go from your kidneys to your bladder. They're like straws or superhighways for your urine. Ooh. Well, they can be stuck to those oh. urine straws that you just mentioned. The endometrioma can be stuck to your uterus. It can be stuck to the other ovary, causing the ovaries to come together in what's called kissing ovaries. It sounds way more romantic than it actually is. <laughs> wow. I... Way to romanticize something super painful, medical field. So we have something called kissing ovaries. And then we have another thing in the literature called deeply infiltrating endometriosis. That is, the acronym is DIE. Like a kind of a big disparity. Yeah, there, either right? we're, <laughs> either our ovaries are kissing or they're dying. I don't like those odds. <laughs> Can we just be in the middle, neutral, just, you know, where we're supposed to be? As you can see, it can be a really complicated surgery if you have a large endometrioma that's sticking to everything. And sometimes it can take an hour or more just to remove the endometrioma. And then the rest of your excision surgery to remove your endometriosis begins after that painstaking labor to remove the endometrioma carefully without damaging the other organs that it's stuck to. And so this is not medical advice because we are not doctors and we don't know your situation and we have not seen your ultrasounds or know anything about your endometriosis or your endometrioma. But I can just say that I read that if your endometrioma does not need to be removed urgently, 
So, like, if you're not at risk for an ovarian torsion. Which means your ovarian could twist when it's not supposed to. Oh, God. Which can actually be life-threatening. And there are other reasons why you could need surgery immediately for your endometrioma. But if you don't need immediate surgery, like, I had that grapefruit-sized endometrioma inside of me for who knows how many months then it could be wise to wait to get it removed by an endometriosis specialist and not just have it removed by your regular gynecologist. But again, we're not telling you to not operate on your endometrioma or anything like that. We're just saying that it's a good option to explore with your doctor. And if you can have specialized care for your endometrioma, there are much more complicated surgeries than they might seem to be. Now we want to talk about verbiage around endometriosis because when we were doing the research for this episode, we kept reading different ways of referring to endometriosis. So sometimes we would see endometriosis being referred to as lesions. Other times it would be referred to as endometriosis nodules. And then other times it would be referred to as endometriosis implants. Any of them sound horrible, so... So endometriosis can be called any one of these three things, but I think it's most commonly referred to as an endometriosis lesion. It's a way to refer to the endometriosis in the body. Many experts use the term nodules or endometriosis nodules or endometriotic nodules. Ooh, I like that one the best. That's (laughs) nice, right? Many use nodule to specifically refer to deep infiltrating endometriosis. Deep infiltrating endometriosis is often deeper. That's why it's not superficial. It's often more fibrotic. It's sometimes it's referred to as a bulky disease. Ew, I don't like that. <laughs> Let's go back to nodule. <laughs> <laughs> and so the reason why is because it's deeper, it has volume and it has bulk. I think that, like, although it's commonly called endometriosis implants in the literature, I would say that. For us lay people, probably endometriosis implants, like I'm not going to refer to endometriosis as implants. And the reason why is because there are many people in the endo community who do not like the term implant because when you hear implants, what does that imply to you? Well, implant makes me think that something has been taken from somewhere else or externally and then put into me. So, like, it's not always been there. Yes. So I think one of the implications that some people have around the term endometriosis implants is that it could imply that endometriosis is implanted from retrograde menstruation. And as we've talked about in the episode that we did on the causes of endometriosis, endo is not caused by retrograde menstruation. The theory of retrograde menstruation as the cause of endometriosis is that the uterus leaks blood back into the abdominal cavity, causing the uterine lining to implant and somehow become endometriosis. This theory has never been proven, and there's so much evidence against this theory. So most likely we are born with endometriosis. So just what we wanted you to know is that using the terminology endometriosis implants, although it is common terminology that is oftentimes used in literature about endometriosis, may have more implications that it's caused by retrograde menstruation. And we don't want to perpetuate that. We don't want to have those implantations. Oh, she did. (laughs) You see what (laughs) I did there? We all did. The implantations. Yeah, we did. So did you know that there are different types of deeply infiltrating endometriosis? Wait, wait, there's subtypes to the three types? You're only telling me this now? Yeah, it's kind of like an afterthought. Uh, I want all thoughts to be during thoughts. (laughs) I know, you like to have the information organized. But we went over a lot of vocabulary in a lot of different situations that I thought were relevant to understanding about the three different types and that's why we didn't talk about them in the moment that we talked about the deep infiltrating endometriosis okay i guess I understand. but don't worry because they're not subtypes is superficial and they're not subtypes to ovarian so we're done talking about those 
And this is the last round of types that you need to know about. Okay, okay, fine. Okay, perfect. The three types of... Wait, there's three again? Well, there's actually four, but the fourth one is really rare, so it's mostly referred to as three. Okay, okay, fine. But, like, technically there are... Officially there are four, but I guess the fourth one is, like, super rare, so... Most commonly talked about is the three types. So there is type one, type two, and type three. Is that what they named them? Yes, it's called type one, die. Type two, die. Type three, die. I hate these names. (laughs) And I vote they should redo it. (laughs) And, of course, when you put the one and the two and the three, you have to use Roman numerals and not the number. So since the types don't have names, how the heck are we supposed to know what they do? They do have names. It's called type one. Okay, that's not a name. I want a thing like deep infiltrating endometriosis. All right. I'll tell you what it is. You make up a name. Okay. I love that. These are the unofficial Britney names. Okay. okay I'm so excited. So. I love naming things. Okay. So keep in mind, this is all deeply infiltrating endometriosis. So more than five millimeters below the peritoneum. Type one is often shaped like a cone. And the reason why is because on the surface of the peritoneum, and remember the peritoneum is like, The tissue paper covering the pelvic cavity or your organs. On the surface, the endo is often wider. And then as it goes deeper, it gets smaller in diameter. So it's kind of like a cone. Like an ice cream cone. So we have chocolate cysts that look like scoops. And then we have conical lesions that look like cones. So we have Chocolate ice cream cones. Yeah. I can't believe it. (laughs) Endometriosis. It's tasty. We just didn't know it. It's Willy Wonka's dream. Oh, my. It's every child's dream. Like, I want chocolate. Like, sure. You're in luck, Charlie. (laughs) And this ice cream cone of endometriosis is suggested to be caused by infiltration, by the going in too deep into the tissue. So what would you name type 1 if you had to rename type 1 dye? That's easy. It's called deep infiltrating endometriosis type ice cream cone. (laughs) I mean, like, obviously. (laughs) Bring that to your doctor. You'd be like, do I have type ice cream cone? They're going to be like, "Uh, type what now? (laughs) (laughs) Like, maybe you do need to see that psychiatrist we've been recommending to you for all of these years. No, Brittany named it. Listen to her podcast. You'll know much more. Okay, type 2 is characterized by retraction of the bowel. If you think about it, when you have this bulky endometriosis in your bowel, and then it's like getting into your bowel, it can cause your bowel to retract or to pull or to distort the anatomy of the bowel. That sounds fascinatingly horrifying. Thank you for that. So what would you name the type 2 dye? Okay, so I think I'm going to name type 2 deeply infiltrating endometriosis type fascinatingly horrifying burrowing endometriotic nodule. That's my type 2. Ooh. (laughs) I like that, although I wonder how long that acronym will be. But hey, as we've learned, science loves acronyms. Okay, moving on to type 3. So type 3 is the most severe, and it's a kind of spherical, spherical, spherical. Oh, mystical. (laughs) It's a kind of spherical endometriotic nodule. It's oftentimes in the rectovaginal septum. So like Brittany said, that wall between your rectum and your vagina. Love that wall there, separating the vagina from the poo. Thank you. Barely. It is suggested to be caused by adenomyosis externa. What the heck is externa? It sounds like some sci-fi series. So the word externa, Brittany, is modifying the word adenomyosis. So it's suggested to be caused by adenomyosis externa. Many of us know what adenomyosis is, but if not, it is a condition when Endometrial glands and stroma are found within the muscle wall of the uterus. 
So the uterus has the uterine lining, and then it has the muscle wall. And the muscle wall is called the myometrium, which is like such a beautiful name. Like myometrium is... It sounds like atrium, which is usually like a beautiful place in a building. It sounds lovely, right? Like myometrium. But the myometrium has been invaded by endometrial glands and stroma that should not be there. And there they are. And so that's adenomyosis. What's fascinating, like I found this really fascinating, is that type 3 deep infiltrating endometriosis under a microscope appears very similar to adenomyosis that's found in the uterus. So some researchers are suggesting that type 3 dye and uterine adenomyosis are actually different forms of the same disease. So there is increasing evidence that is showing that somehow type 3 dye and uterine adenomyosis are associated with each other. Some researchers have even suggested that rectovaginal endometriotic nodules, that they should actually be called rectovaginal adenomyosis. So Brittany and I came across an article that was published in March of 2019, and the article was called, What If Deep Endometriotic Nodules and Uterine Adenomyosis Were Actually Two Forms of the Same Disease? And the researchers proposed a hypothesis that perhaps rectovaginal nodules Perhaps they actually begin in the uterine wall as adenomyosis, and then they grow outward, and then they infiltrate or invade the rectovaginal space and or the digestive tract. In that research, they also said that this might be the same for nodules that are found in the bladder. And then some researchers actually suggest that They should be called bladder adenomyosis. Okay, so I have my type 3 name ready. Are you ready? Oh, yeah. So my third type is deeply infiltrating endometriosis type. Crystal ball might be adenomyosis externa, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I got the might be adenomyosis externa, maybe, because it maybe could be that, according to the studies. But what's up with the crystal ball? Well, you said that they're spherical, and also we don't know if it's endometriosis or adenomyosis externa, so we can use the crystal ball to find out. Yeah. Ooh, and yeah. that might actually be more accurate than yeah. waiting to get funding and... Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully all of that was either really interesting, you're sitting at the edge of your seat right now, and you're like, God! This is all so fascinating to learn about the disease that is inside of my body and to learn that I might have superficial or I might have a chocolate factory or I might have a crystal ball might be an adenomyosis maybe. But I think it is really helpful to learn about this disease because when we learn about what endometriosis really is, it takes out that mystery. I think with learning about the three types of endometriosis, superficial endometrioma or deep infiltrating endometriosis, It's helpful when speaking to our surgeons to understand the kind of endometriosis that we have. Now, I think with deep infiltrating endometriosis and then the three subtypes of that, that might be more research-oriented, and many doctors are likely not classifying your deep endometriosis into the types, but rather will tell you that you had deep infiltrating endometriosis and then where it was located such as your rectovaginal septum or your uterosacral ligaments or your digestive tract or your bladder. Some questions you can ask your doctor post-op are, where was my endometriosis located? Were most of the lesions that you found superficial? Or did I have deep infiltrating endometriosis? Do you know roughly how deep the endometriotic lesions were? 
And this doctor is going to be like, oh, oh my, my goodness. God, are you in medical school? Like, where are like, you no, learning I'm this? I'm in endometriosis school. <laughs> Via audio learning by Brittany and Amy. <laughs> As we wrap up this episode, we want to clarify that any form or stage of endometriosis can cause pain or inflammation or symptoms or all three. We don't want anyone minimizing their own symptoms or situation because they only have, quote unquote, only have superficial endometriosis. Unfortunately, in the last few years, we've seen myths pop up from some misinformed members of the medical community that superficial endometriosis just isn't a big deal and can be treated with hormones and doesn't need excision. And that is not true. And I think that part of this is perpetuated by the recommendations of the endometriosis guidelines. You know, in the 2022 European endometriosis guidelines, they say that people with deep infiltrating endometriosis should be referred to a center of expertise, which is great. Like, that's a great recommendation. But that recommendation is only there for deep infiltrating endometriosis. When the truth is, that all endometriosis patients should be referred to an endometriosis center of expertise or specialty center, no matter what type of endometriosis they have. There should be more specialty centers worldwide, and endo should only be treated by true specialists who actually know how to treat the disease. Ideally, endometriosis would be its own subspecialty, And then patients could go to these centers of expertise and be counseled by true experts on the limitations and the risks and the benefits of excision, as well as hormonal suppression. And this way they can make an informed choice for treatment or management of endometriosis that's right for them. It's not fair to withhold quality care from patients who only have superficial disease, and that's not my emphasis. That's like the emphasis of these other medical professionals, right? So if you, quote unquote, only have superficial disease or an endometrioma. Superficial endometriosis can cause horrible symptoms. And the patient should have the option to excise the endometriosis if that is what they want. And we know, as we said in this episode, that endometriomas are not just an ovarian cyst. They're often a marker for more extensive pelvic and intestinal disease, and they're rarely found alone. All types of endometriosis need and deserve expert care. And in bringing up the guidelines, I want to say that for endometriomas specifically, The 2022 European Endometriosis Guidelines, as well as the U.S. ACOG Guidelines, recommend excision of endometrioma instead of drainage and ablation. And speaking of treatment, I know we said that some research suggests that type 3 dye and adenomyosis are somehow associated with each other, but we are in no way implying that a hysterectomy would be a treatment for these. Because as we know, a hysterectomy is a treatment for adenomyosis, but it's not a treatment for endometriosis. A final thing that I want to mention in my monologue over here is that not all forms of endometriosis can be seen on imaging. So typically, superficial endometriosis cannot be seen on imaging, but endometriomas or deep infiltrating endometriosis may be seen. However, it's really important to know that how the scans are done, the machine used, and the expertise of who is reading the scans is extremely important. Doctors who don't have the experience and the skills may not recognize signs of endometriosis on an ultrasound or on an MRI. So it's important to know that even if your scan is negative, it doesn't mean that you don't have endometriosis understanding as much about this disease as we possibly can is a really great way to equip ourselves. And like Amy said, knowledge is power. If you want, please reach out to us. Let us know what type of endometriosis you have. 
Or what you would name the three types if you didn't like Ooh, my names. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That's even better. Ignore the question I asked. Of course, you can still respond. But yes, what would you name the three types of deeply infiltrating endometriosis? We would love to know. Feel free to reach out to us. We are on Instagram at in16yearsofendo. And we are on the website in16years.com. And there you can connect with us via email. If you'd like to support us, you can rate our podcast in your podcast app, reach out to us via email or Instagram, or buy us a coffee via the support page on our website. Thanks for listening, learning about my love of chocolate, and hate for intercourse at this time. (laughs) Things we know about Amy, how much she loves chocolate, how much she loves cheese, how much she doesn't like penetrative intercourse at this time. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, we will leave you. So... Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next time.